This is the Santita Jackson Show. Six minutes after six o'clock. Good morning. I'm Tori Ryder in for Santita Jackson. Santita is resting, mending. We fervently hope she will be up and doing and back to, if not 100%, close to it by Monday when uh, her next show is scheduled to happen. But what's happening this morning, you can always tell that it's Friday at a radio station because people who normally come into work dressed, you know, like they're like like they sort of came in half in their pajamas, which includes me, uh, they come in looking pretty snappy. So it's fun to see Henry dressed for date night. I can't say that I am looking any better than I have all week. Uh, but when you call, he's the person who answers the phone, pushes the button, makes it all happen. I also want to make sure I thank Julia Shu, who made it possible for me to be here with you and have some interesting folks for you to meet. And you are about to meet somebody else, I think, that you will enjoy. Um, you may have heard, it's been in the news, that Chicago is going to try something a little bit different when it comes to responding to people who are in... Um, I don't even know what the proper term is. We used to call it addiction. Oh boy. What is, what is the, let's just get her on here. She can, can explain it all. Sarah Richardson, welcome to WCPT. You're the program manager in the Office of Substance Use for the city of Chicago. What is, what is the proper name now for people? We don't call them drug addicts anymore. We call them, what do we call them? Yeah. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Um, yeah. Good morning. Uh, so you can say a substance use disorder there or an addiction. Go. For some reason, yeah. the disorder thing, I think probably because when I think of disorder, I usually think of the back of my car. So this is much more <laughs> serious. And, and the city of Chicago is putting in five vending machines. Can you describe these to us? Absolutely. Yeah. So they are vending machines just like you would vend soda pop or chips out of, except instead of soda pop or chips, we've got things like Narcan or Naloxone. That's the medication that reverses an opioid overdose. You've got general hygiene kits and socks and underwear, fentanyl and xylazine test strips. And so these machines are put up in five different locations around the city where we've had um, a good concentration of opioid overdoses. And they're free to use for anyone in the city. Well, one of them is going to be in my neighborhood of Uptown. I had I had some thoughts, some questions I have to ask you, but today's the day of the ribbon cutting around these Narcan dispensing machines, which are free, as you point out. Um, first of all, I'm going to I'm going to use as a conduit to this. My oldest kid, I call him the big cutie on the air because otherwise I'm just an embarrassment as a mom. And and he uh, at his university um, became an EMT because his university, which he's graduated from now, but they run an ambulance service around their school and in Harlem, which is near their university. And so during COVID, he came here and he was at one of the community hospitals working. And he said there were a lot of 
houseless uh, folks who came in wanting things like socks and underwear. And the, the hospital kept a closet full of this stuff and, and tried to accommodate people. Is that where did the city get the list of what we want to have in these machines? Is that the kind of input you solicited or how did how did you decide? Was it other cities? Where did it come from? Yeah, so primarily it came from a series of focus groups and conversations we had um, while we were planning the project with people who use drugs, people in recovery, and providers and outreach groups who work with those communities. And we do know that there is a large overlap between people experiencing homelessness or other sort of uh, vulnerabilities, social and economic vulnerabilities, and folks who use drugs and folks who have opioid use disorders. And so we wanted to make sure that kind of the full range of what I'll just call broadly harm reduction products was available in the machine to meet people's needs. Because if you're cold um, or you haven't had a shower, you know, that can be just as um, challenging for you in the day as sort of other needs that you have. Absolutely. So I'm going to turn the clock back a little bit to a time when there was a neighborhood kerfuffle over uh, neighbors objecting to a soup truck in an area where there was a large encampment because of the litter and the garbage from people once they were done with whatever they were using. So I have to ask, do you also have um, uh, receptacles for the byproducts of the things that you're dispensing, like used needles? Uh, do you have a safe needle drop? Do you have, believe it or not, it's going to sound like a weird question, some kind of laundry hamper? I mean, if, I'm assuming if you're taking off your old socks and underwear, you, you, you've got to put them somewhere. And I don't think anybody wants to find them festooning the bushes in front of their uh, house. So what's happening to the, is it a complete circle of things or so far just the dispensing? Yeah, sure. So uh, none of the machines have sharps or needles in them at this point, and we don't have plans for that. So there, okay. We don't have any sharps disposals near the machines at this time. No problem. There are then. trash cans. Uh-huh. Yeah, there are trash cans um, near all of the machines. Um, four of them are in indoor locations, um, you know, and then the fifth one is at the CTA red line, which is sort of quasi indoor outdoor. Yeah. Um, and so there are folks around kind of making sure that the space is kept clean, you know, the staff that are on site at those locations anyways. Yeah. So I we're going to see how that goes. They've been up for about two weeks and we haven't sort of had any complaints or issues with litter or other things. Yeah. But we'll That's see how good to know because frankly, when you get on the train, you got enough stuff to deal with without somebody's dirty underwear flying down the red line car that you don't need. So, okay. Um, now I, comes the more tricky question. We have been taught that if someone is experiencing an overdose, I think a lot of us have been, have been given information on how to use Narcan. We've also been told that people coming out of a drug overdose by means of Narcan can be physically violent. They get they get upset that you've uh, that you've stopped what when they went under was their great high, and. Also, um, you don't necessarily know what's going on with a person without getting really, really close to them. How do you resolve? I mean, this is my true confession. I see a lot of passed out people in my neighborhood. And unless they're like lying half in the street or, or in a place where they could get hurt by something else, I've learned not to disturb them, that that tends to be the best course of action. Who, how does the passerby know when someone really needs help and when they should 
you know, be left to their own devices. Yeah, thank you. This is such a common question and really important. So the first thing, um, if you are ever in doubt, is calling 911, right? Like, let the professionals understand the situation and help folks. Always call 911. If you suspect an overdose, call 911. Um, when it comes to using Narcan, any of us in Illinois, we can use Narcan, we can carry Narcan. And the first important thing to know about Narcan is it's not going to hurt somebody who's not overdosing. So if you do see someone passed out and you, um, and my recommendation, if, you, if you're inclined to help, is first try a verbal um, you know, verbally say, hey, are you okay? Try to wake them up without touching them, without going too close. If they're not responsive at all, um, you can try to shake them a little bit, keep your distance enough to keep yourself safe. Um, and if they're also not responsive to that and you do suspect a drug overdose or something like that um, and you feel comfortable, it really is about administering Narcan, calling 911 and administering Narcan. And if it is not a drug overdose, Narcan is not going to harm that person at all. If that, it is a drug overdose, yes. That was that was really less my question, and and more about you know we've we've seen these videos over and over of people who are woken up and they're they're they strike out immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I, I it's a confession on I think the part of many of us that we would be frightened for our safety and at the same time want to do the good thing. So. You know, and, right. and then the time, I mean, in my neighborhood, the firefighters and paramedics probably wouldn't say this publicly, but they get called because it's a neighborhood where there's a lot of gentrification and there are a lot of people who are still living on the streets and in various states of self-harm and need and want. And so they get called for everything all the time. They have to come with two fire trucks and an ambulance. And frequently it's it's somebody who's peacefully passed out and doesn't want any part of them. But if you're a passerby, before you unleash all of that siren lights and professional help, the person may wake up angry. How, how I mean, are you saying that doesn't happen? I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying I think uh, I think I'm hearing two things. So if it is a drug overdose and you do use Narcan and they wake up swinging or they wake up upset, I think it's important to understand what's going on there and how to keep yourself safe. Yeah, what do you so, do? Number, Back yeah. up and call 911 then or just run away or what do you do? Yeah, so ideally you've called 911 before you administer ah, Narcan. Okay, mm-hmm. I did. And then if okay. you have administered, you want to take a, You definitely want to take a step back. Okay. Narcan will act quickly, but it's not sort of within one second, right? So administer Narcan and give yourself some steps back away from that person. Ah. It's best if you don't run away um, because for a number of reasons, you know, that Narcan might not work. They might need more than one dose. Ah. Um, they might just wake up not necessarily physically expressing their pain and frustration, but very confused. And so waking up alone and confused and in pain um, is really traumatic for somebody. So if you can stay um, stay back, right? Kind of calmly explain what's going on until 911 arrives. That's really important. And I do want to say that what that person is going through after a Narcan has been administered, it's the physical and emotional withdrawal symptoms of opioid withdrawal, which is incredibly, incredibly painful. Um, and so part of a, a good part of that sort of physical reaction that can happen after someone's been administered Narcan 
is a reaction to intense physical pain. And so that's what I try to tell folks is remember that they are disoriented. They probably don't remember overdosing. The stranger is in front of them, right? And, and suddenly they're awake and they're in the worst pain of their life. And so that is what's going on with them. And if you can remember that, I think it helps sort of contextualize the whole the whole event. That is so important. I've never heard anybody say what you just said. And I'm really grateful that you're here to say it because what the rest of the not particularly drug taking public has been given to understand is they're just peeved that you've ruined their good time. But that's not what I'm hearing from you. This is so useful and helpful. I had no idea people woke up in pain and it's intense withdrawal. Thank you for that information. So let's talk a little bit about the the political and community activism process that got these machines installed and where they're going to be. I understand there are five of them to start with. They'll be in which locations? Yeah, so there's five. They're actually already all in place. <laughs> so as you said, the Uptown Library is the one on the north side, right in the vestibule as you walk in. Mm-hmm. We also have one um, on the west side at the 10 South Kedzie DSSS Garfield Park um, Community Service Center, which is actually where our event at 10 a.m. this morning will be held. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got one downtown at Harold Washington Library, and that one is on the third floor, um, right by the elevators as you go up. And then we've got two on the south side. So there's one on the 95th Red Line CTA. It's in the north terminal, and it's outside of the um, paid ticketed area. Um, and then the last one is also on the south side on 115th Street. There, it's the Roseland Community Triage Center. It's a sort of um, mental health and substance use 24-7 triage center. And then the front part of it has got a little waiting area where we have a vending machine. The, the one at the Harold Washington Library on the third floor, just to hear you give that location, sounds like a peculiar choice. Our are people changing their socks and underwear and overdosing on the third floor of the Harold Washington Library? Or is one expected to run in, wait for the elevator, run up, run down? I mean, how there must be a reason why you put it there. Why? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that question is helpful clarification for these machines are not meant to be if someone is experiencing an overdose right there, ah. running to get the Narcan and go back and grab it. Certainly, if that were to happen, um, you know, this could be a helpful resource. But we don't have overdoses on the third floor of Harold Washington. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Our, I'm very glad. Yeah. <laughs> Deeply relieved. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what, what we do have in Harold Washington are a lot of um, housing and other social services support providers and uh, a lot of folks experiencing homelessness. Got it. Um, and we have actually already been distributing Narcan through our Narcan at Libraries partnership from Harold Washington um, via just sort of boxes um, on the wall on the first floor. And I think there might also be one on the third floor. Um, and that location has distributed thousands of Narcan kits since we, since we started last year. So we know it's a place where people know they can go get what they need. And I think that's why we chose two libraries as well, that those are places where people feel safe yes. and where they already are congregating and they know that they can work with community members and, and library staff to to sort of get what they need. I will say it, it has, it, it, it's been so pronounced in Uptown that I've just, I use the Solzer Regional Library now. Uh, some So this may... This may actually even out so that you you don't deal with people in such distress um, when you come to pick up your copy of Captain Underpants for your kid, uh, which would also be nice. I mean, want everybody to be able to use the library. 
uh, safely and comfortably. And, and this might help with that. Let me ask you about social mm, denial, basically. Um, I'm giving you an example. It was a few years ago now. My youngest is finished with university, but my kids went to one of Chicago's, they went to Lane, and I went to some parent staff meeting. Uh, so this would have been, you know, at least five years ago. And I put my little hand up and I asked the principal at the time, different principal now, does the school have Narcan in the nurse's office or are the staff carrying Narcan? And the response was, this is, you know, this is an elite, blah, 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 and we don't need and we would call 911. And I, I was really upset. And the parents looked at me like, you know, who is this woman who would dare to, to even imply that this stuff might be needed in our elite institution? Did you run into a lot of that from neighbors? Like, we don't, we don't have that problem here. Um, or is it pretty obvious to everyone that, that anyone might need this? Yeah, I think specifically for these five vending machines, we haven't run into that um, dynamic in the in the areas or the sites that we're working with. But I have seen that dynamic absolutely when it comes to Narcan um, in Chicago and in other places in the country, right? Where there's this idea that like certain communities or certain groups don't need this, and that's um, just a, a byproduct of the stigma surrounding substance use and opioid use disorders. And it's absolutely false, right? And so it only, and thank you for advocating in your community, it, it only sort of is a detriment to folks when they really need it in emergencies. We know that every day, three to four people in Chicago die of an opioid overdose, and that is in every single community area, right? And so all of us, every single person, whether you feel deeply personally affected by the opioid crisis or you don't know anyone, or you or you think you don't know anyone who is affected by the opioid crisis, it's still really important to, at minimum, know what Narcan is and how to use it, if not be carrying it yourself. And I, so anyone can, can get Narcan from these machines as you go into the library. You know, you don't have to have an opioid use disorder or be using drugs yourself, and I think that's really important. Yeah, it really is. You just don't know. Um, one of my girlfriends who's a nurse, just every time she leaves her house in her purse, she has it because you, you never know. Um, my kid actually was, was at an EMT convention in Boston and someone came blazing out of the bathroom yelling for help for Narcan. Um, apparently these were two adults, a father and son, um, interestingly and horrifyingly enough. And it was the father who, who needed the Narcan. And you just, you know, my kid said, I, I was just traveling. It never occurred to me, but I was really glad I had it with me. Um, and I think, I think that if, if, how long does this stuff last in the bottom of your purse while I have you on? It never occurred to me to ask how fast does this stuff expire? Yeah. Yeah. So it's got about two to three years, um, shelf life. And so every box has got an expiration date on it. Um, and another key thing to know is that it will freeze if it goes, um, if, you know, if it's cold outside, if it's too cold. Um, and so don't leave it in your car overnight or your purse outside overnight or something Oh, like good. That. No, that's a good reminder. I mean, here in Chicago, we keep all kinds of things in our car, battery chargers right. and windshield yeah. fluid. And you might just stick it in your glove compartment thinking, oh, this is a good place for it. If I pass somebody who needs it, I'll have it. So that's And the stuff that you're giving is the squirted up the nose stuff. Is that what it is? It is, yeah. It looks and works just like a nasal spray you'd get for anything else. So anyone can kind of figure that out right in the moment. 
Well, is there anything, as you sit here with me on phone today, what other things do you think we need to know about this new program? Are there other uh, locations that are clamoring for these machines? Tell me more about the future of this program after you do your ribbon cutting. I can't say it for some reason. Ribbon cutting today. Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing is that these machines are open to anyone in Chicago, right? So like I said before, you don't need to be using drugs or feel like you identify with um, a sort of vulnerable group to access uh, these machines. And you can go to chicago.gov slash vending machines for a lot more information. It's also where you can get a PIN code. We didn't talk about that, but um, we are collecting just a little bit of information, a zip code, and then a set of optional questions. Um, from folks to get a PIN code to access the machines. We're, we're going to be at the machines. We have been at the machines teaching people how to use them. So come by and learn. Meet our team at any of the sites. Um, I think that that's really important. We'll be publishing in the first couple months. Um, we're thinking about this first year as the pilot year. So five machines in this first year. So we're going to publish data on who's, who's using them, what we can learn from it, what times of day are people accessing these items. Um, and that will help us kind of form an understanding of whether we ought to expand and if so, how and where. And um, I will also say on that website, you can tell us what sorts of things you would like to see in the machines. Well, let me, um, we can let always me pause change you while we still have time. Um, talk more about this information that you're asking for and the PIN code, because I can feel folks getting nervous like what do they want to know from me other than my zip code what what do they want to know what do you want to know yeah so the only thing that we that you have to tell us is your zip code to get uh, a pin code okay um and then yeah so they'll ask you for your zip code and you will input any zip code that you want to but Mm -hmm. ideally one that is where you live so that we can understand put in kenilworth just for fun (laughs) i'm sorry go ahead (laughs) And then um, you will hit the button that says next. And then there will be a series of optional questions that you can skip entirely. You don't even have to read through them. Um, But those are questions that ask, have you ever experienced an overdose um, or witnessed someone that's experiencing an overdose? Have you ever been in treatment for opioid use disorder? Um, What is your housing status? And um, what year were you born? What is your race, race ethnicity? And so those are entirely optional, like I said. We've had about um, 140 people since we started about two weeks ago register for PIN codes, and over half of them have completed the survey. And of those folks, we've seen over half expressing housing vulnerability or homelessness. Huh. So it's it's helpful for us to know, you know, number one, are people going to complete the survey or is it just burdensome and we should get rid of it? And then number two, if they do complete it, like, what are we learning and uh, about the population that's using the machines and how can that inform funding for machines like this, interventions, understanding of where we should put them or what we should put inside of them? Well, that makes perfect sense. Thank you so much for all of this good information. Congratulations on getting these machines out there. I'm pretty sure they'll save lives and keep people cleaner, cleaner and warmer this winter. Good of you to be with us on WCPT. That's Sarah Richardson, uh, manager of the Office of Substance Abuse. The ribbon cutting for these new machines is today. Santita Jackson Show. I'm Tori Ryder, WCPT. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Gotta save the children, we can't wait.
Just about 6.34, it is the Santita Jackson Show. I am Turi with you, rider like the truck, in for Ms. Jackson, uh, who we hope will return on Monday. She's been she's been out sick this week, but we gave her, because we're, we're a nice progressive station. We believe in giving people time to get better when they're ill and not forcing them to come in when they're not feeling 100%. So we hope that by Monday that'll be the case and Santita will be back with you. You've been hearing a lot of news. I mean, it's pretty much the lead story in everybody's newscast, the war between Israel and Hamas. And the recent cycle has featured a lot of stories of the IDF and Shifra Hospital and tunnels that they are finding and tunnels that other people think they should be finding and gear behind MRI machines and cars that are booby-trapped and the horrors of the citizenry of Gaza. And, and you're hearing a lot from from that side of the battlefield. What is going on in Israel right now? Maybe you're hearing a little bit less about that. So I wanted you to meet a woman who is a visiting professor at the University of Haifa. She's in Jerusalem, I understand right now, Jerusalem-based. You may have uh, taken a class with her at Northwestern. She was a visiting professor there. She's written um, a book and has another one coming out. Her first book, City on a Hilltop, American Jews and the Israeli Settler Movement, won all kinds of prizes. And I think I should just let you hear from her directly. Is it Dr. Hirshhorn? Welcome to WCPT. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's nice to hear from you in Chicago. Well, it's good to be heard from. This is our first conversation. So, uh, how, first of all, how are you? I'm doing very well. Um, Jerusalem is rather quiet. As you know, it you know seems quite distant from the front at the moment and has been mostly spared from the rocket um, sirens that um, have been continue to be um, a concern in central Israel and in, in southern coastal Israel as well. So I think it's a little quieter than usual around here these days, but um, it feels um, relatively safe and um, people are going about their daily business. So uh, we heard in the early uh, weeks of the war that so many people had been called up to serve that all the shops were pretty much closed because they didn't have anybody to staff them, run them, and everyone was sort of glued perpetually to the news. Is that the same now, or are people out, and you mentioned they're out and about, but how much of normal life is going on there? Um, I think there is uh, a real feeling of an absence of um, like a demographic of men between, say, 18 and 45 who are either soldiers or have been called up for reserve duty, though you see them returning on the weekend or, you know, periodically through the week with um, in, in uniform or with, um, you know, carrying machine guns that they need to uh, keep with them when they're uh, um, away from reserve duty. Um, and the business activity here, I think, is relatively slow. Essential services are open. But um, the kind of tourism-related industry has been completely decimated. And I think even the kind of optional um, activities that people might have engaged in otherwise, you know, going to a restaurant in the evening or, you know, visiting a bar or cafe, um, a lot of those places are still closed or really short-staffed. Um, and particularly the old city, where which is highly dependent on tourism and, you know, um, East Jerusalem shopkeepers in, 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 um, in the old city are really suffering right now because they're... 
simply are, are no tourists here and the economy is just being carried by normal Israelis going about their day-to-day life. But I don't think that they're really, um, uh, they're not really doing more than what's uh, necessary right now. Schools um, a lot of are, staying are, home, are, people are, with family. Are, are people school, going schools to school? Schools are open. Um, Schools are open. Um, at the beginning, there was a little bit of a concern because not all schools um, have reinforced bomb shelters, especially here in Jerusalem. So there was a question about how to accommodate all the classes um, in such a way that if there was a rocket siren, um, all the students would be protected. So there was a shift schedule. But now I think things have mostly gone back to normal. Um, daycare, child care, um, even elder care, I think, has you know resumed pretty much as was before. But um, that's because Jerusalem is, um, you know, relatively far from everything else. I think if you're in a city like Ashkelon um, on the southern coast, things are probably looking very different where they're having rocket sirens periodically throughout the day. I, I know that's also true in the north because I have family who live up close to Lebanon and they're in a hotel right. in Jerusalem for the for the duration, I, I suppose. Uh, let me ask yes. you about... The political environment there. I mean, we all know that before this war, there was a huge protest movement against the right wing government and its affinity for settling the West Bank and its support for uh, and here this is just my political view. It's support for these violent settlers who just felt like they had a mandate to treat the inhabitants of the West Bank any way they wanted uh, with utter disregard for for their rights. And then after the October 7th invasion, the country pulled together. Now I'm hearing that there uh, may be murmurings. I heard Benny Gantz has said he wants to be part of a government, um, same party as Netanyahu, but without Netanyahu. Are there starting to be cracks in this unanimity? And which way is the shift happening, if you sense it? Yeah, um, certainly uh, while there is a sense that uh, the leadership will stay in place due to this national emergency, the moment um, uh, things have uh, gone back to some kind of normalcy, it seems very clear that the population has turned very strongly against Netanyahu. The latest poll showed that 72% of Israelis want Netanyahu to go the moment, um, you know, things things feel a bit more stable. Who is um, the head of the National Unity Party and a former, uh, former chief general of the IDF? You know, you know what? I'm, I'm going to hold you up. We seem to be losing your connection. Uh, we're going to take. Oh, a, let me a, try and let oh. me try and move it. You move Is that a better for you? Yeah, that's better. Okay, where we lost you was you said that there is a sense that Netanyahu needs to be gone the minute this is over, and then I, I didn't yes. get what you said after that. I'm sorry, um, something like 72% of Israelis in the latest poll said that they want Netanyahu to go the moment the situation stabilizes. And Benny Gantz, the head of the National Unity Party, uh, a general, um, former former chief commander of the IDF, is probably the most well-placed to um, become the next prime minister. A poll yesterday showed that his party would take about 37 seats and he'd be able to form a kind of centrist coalition with the Likud, Netanyahu's party, and Yeshatid, which is the current largest opposition party, but I think on the condition that Netanyahu would no longer be um, uh, in parliament and that basically he would have to resign or otherwise um, leave government office. 
But there is a path forward to a more stable future here in Israel. Um, and the temporary pause in all legislation, including the judicial reform protests, I think has given Israelis a moment of clarity about how they want to proceed going forward. Although I should say that um, the protests that we saw for nine months prior to this war, including the whole spring and summer while I was here on sabbatical in Jerusalem, are slated to resume on the 25th of November. So Israelis are going to be back out in the streets um, calling for Netanyahu to resign in about a week. Wow, that's really something. So in the middle of a war, uh, they might still make that change is what I hear you say. I don't know if it's going to happen. I, I think there's going to be a kind of grace period until um, uh, there's a sense of uh, what comes next in Gaza. Right now, uh, obviously, the IDF is engaged in you know serious fighting there. Uh, no one really knows what the scenario is going to look like um, in a few weeks when it seems that uh, we will be moving into a different stage of this operation. Uh, but uh, I think it's coming very soon, um, and uh, Israelis have a real appetite for some kind of change, and also to hold those responsible uh, who apparently were asleep at their deaths on when ten seven happened. So uh, there is going to be um, there is going to be a serious inquiry, probably along the lines of what was known as the Argonaut Commission in 1973, which investigated the failures of the Yom Kippur War. Um, that will probably take place uh, alongside any new elections or leadership changes. Yeah, you're going to get what happened here, I suppose, after September 11th, a big festival of hindsight. It's going to be, you know, we warned you about this. You ignored us. We saw this. You didn't pay attention. You took your eye off the ball. You were, you know, obsessed with the settlements, whatever it is. Let me ask you about... Uh, here in America, it's there. There's huge division, huge explosion in anti-Muslim activity, anti-Jewish activity. It's a scary time to be either one of those things, um, and it, it it seems to be resulting in some sort of tectonic shift uh, amongst the the voters of the country and it, along age and demographic. What's happening there? I heard an interview with uh, a former IDF soldier who um, who spoke on behalf of Breaking the Silence, uh, which is a group of veterans who, who feel that the the militarization, if I if I'm using that word correctly in this context of, of Israel, is ill placed and won't get a peaceful result. And they've been advocating for a long time for. Um, some sort of, of shift and uh, two-state solution. Um, and then this October 7th happened, and there was this, you know, we're not going to deal with that right now. Is that starting to come back? We, we need to work we, we need to work toward a, a peaceful solution. Is there any kind of disturbance, upset, outrage over the civilian toll in Gaza? What, what is the temperature on all of that there that you're seeing and hearing? Well, I think actually the you know push to a return to the two-state solution seems to me is primarily going to come from American domestic politics. Um, certainly Biden is watching very carefully um, what the swing state vote will look like in places like Michigan and Ohio, um, which have both large Jewish and Muslim populations, both of whom um, have their own opinions about the conduct of uh, the American government in, in, in this uh, in this war. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, right now, Israel is not thinking in that direction, but there does seem to be a consensus growing in Washington that at the moment, you know, hostilities or some kind of hostilities, and it should be back to the negotiating table. 
uh, also with the support of Arab states, particularly those who had ideas about normalization with Israel. But I think that this is going to be a very difficult proposition for Israel right now. Um, the whole rubric of the two-state solution, a land for peace process, seems to many Israelis to have begot a kind of pogrom for peace rather than, um, you know, an expectation of living side by side with their neighbors in peace and security. So I find it difficult to see how um, Israel in particular will return to a kind of traditional two-state solution, although I think there is a very, very strong growing understanding here that there is no military solution to this problem. Right now, there doesn't seem to be any um, diplomatic solution to this problem, but Israel reoccupying Gaza, Israel's continuing presence in the West Bank, um, watching, you know, soldiers uh, fighting and dying, seeing the death tolls of Palestinians, um, knowing that Hamas had vowed another, you know, 10-7 attack in Israel every day that ends in Y, if it was possible, is, an uns- is not a sustainable situation for either Israelis or Palestinians. So while I'm not sure there is quite um, a, kind of a diplomatic solution has emerged that takes into account the real paradigm shift of 10-7 that maybe does not allow for land for peace to be pursued in the same way that it had been before, I think there is an acknowledgement here that um, ultimately there is no military solution. That would be um, a shift for for many Israelis, I I think. Um, I'm wondering whether there's also an acknowledgement well, let me back up a little bit. It, it has often seemed to Americans, uh, and Israel has said, we don't care if we lose the support of the entire world. We're, we're going to go on with this. And those of us who live in countries that are big supporters of Israel financially, technically, on the world stage, have sometimes shaken our heads and, and said, well, you really can't do this completely without us. Um, is that a correct read? And if so, has that changed at all? Is there an awareness in the higher ups of the government that actually there is an inter- interdependence on uh, on the supporters of Israel? And so their their goals must also be considered. Look, I think Israel is uh, shocked by some of the activity on the streets and on college campuses in the United States right now, um, you know, particularly, you know, actions like pulling down the posters of, you know, uh, hostage photos um, has really taken Israelis by surprise. And I think it has also made them question how reliable a partner, um, you know, some parts of the American public or other parts of the West really are to Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, So while the governments, you know, continue to be quite supportive of Israeli military aims and general, um, you know, political situation, um, I think there is some, some, you know, growing seeds of doubt that maybe uh, the populations, much like sort of the difference between the Arab governments and the Arab street, that there really is a question about how loyal or the changing attitudes of, of, of Western, Western populations towards Israel, which has, you know, kind of been unmasked by recent events. I think Israel right now is thinking in the short term in, um, about its stated military goals in Gaza, which is to decapitate Hamas leadership, to disarm uh, Hamas of as much military material and rockets as possible, and to push um, any uh, remaining abilities uh, deeper into the Gaza Strip so that it'll be more difficult for, say, rockets to reach territorial Israel, and of course to liberate the over 240 hostages that remain in Hamas captivity. So those are Israel's priorities at the moment, and I think they're, they are not concerned about public opinion. They have stated that this is what they want to achieve, and, you know, basically um, 
uh, a ceasefire is uh, a call for Hamas to continue in power and to inflict another 10-7 on Israel um, and that they will pursue these aims until the end. But in a longer term, I think Israel is becoming more, but not sufficiently, in my mind, cognizant of the uh, of the question of world opinion, not just of government, but how governments are changing because their populations and their demographic concerns are responding to these issues. Um, and where, say, the Democratic Party in the United States might be in 25 years, or where the UK or other European countries may be in 25 years, is very significant for Israel's security um, and prosperity in this region. And if, you know, you want to ask me as a, as a private citizen of the United States and not as an, and I'm not an Israeli citizen, I think Israel better be paying a lot more attention to these trends than they currently are. That's, that's interesting to hear you say that because, um, as, as an American who's only spent a little bit of time in Israel, um, much, much less than you and far less expert than you, I, I am consistently shocked when I meet Israelis who seem to believe that Americans should regard the, um, the, the fight, their fight as an existential fight for us in some way. And it's difficult to... Ex- well, I think that is true. I think that is true. Um, and, um, you know, just like the war in Ukraine has taken on an aspect of being an existential fight against um, uh, Russia and against forces um, aligned with Russia, I think this has also become an existential threat against the threat of Iran um, and Iranian-backed militias who are attacking American troops uh, in the Middle East in I, addition to what's going on in Israel. So I think that those things are true, but there's a larger question of sort of the West versus the rest, which Israel is also, um, you know, uh, um, also um, uh discussing here in terms of the war against Hamas. That, that's actually not not what I was saying. What, what I hear from Israelis when they come here is that they're surprised. And I, and I don't, based on the American media that I'm consuming here, I don't think America quite has interpreted this as a conflict with Iran, even though we are getting news that our troops have engaged in, you know, rocket fire uh, against uh, uh, proxies of Iran. I think it's still a little shocking to Israelis that here there's just not a unanimous consensus that, you know, we send everything Israel asks for to Israel, regardless of its government, regardless of, you know, how we interpret their uh, policies. I I think they're shocked. And as you pointed out, uh, when they see American media with posters being ripped down, it's surprising. But it's been surprising to them for a long time that the people we elect are the people who decide what kind of support financial and otherwise is coming to them. I, I don't think that I don't think up until now anyway, that that calculation has been um, something that the that most Israelis have made. They just assumed that the faucet. I think was to be fair, I think this conversation about conditioning aid to Israel or about whether Israel needs foreign aid is it actually you know the mainstreaming of that conversation is reasonably recent, um, probably you know in the last four or five years. So. Yeah. Um, it's, it's new to the American public as well. But what Israelis see that I think Americans have not necessarily taken on board and may you know, be resistant to taking on board is they see um, this as first a proxy war with Iran, but also a struggle against um, Islamic terror 
um, much in the way that Americans might have seen 9-11. But I don't think that um, Americans necessarily link what's happening in Israel with, you know, domestic threats in the United States. And, of course, this bleeds into the questions, you know, in America of Islamophobia and suspicion and um, of, of Islamic institutions or of Muslims and, you know, some very thorny domestic politics questions. So um, Israelis see their struggle not as kind of a local what's happening in the backyard of, you know, um, Israel and Gaza, but in a more global sense, which I'm not sure Americans necessarily perceive in the same way, right. especially because they are very distant from the Middle East. Yes. And um, Israel, you know, and the United States is trying to stay out of wars in the Middle East as much as possible. Gee, I wonder why. Um, <laughs> we, we, we are we, when our president is referring to uh, um, Afghanistan in almost one of his first conversations with Israel. Like, take a clue from our from Iraq. Right. Take take a hint. Um, yeah, that that's definitely the temperature here. Let's turn to the hostages. Um, that's got to be a really really heartbreaking scenario there. Uh, for people, I, I heard an interview with the mother of a, of um, a young woman who was killed, and she was trying to explain in this interview that revenge was not on her itinerary, but that this war right. was was not about revenge; it was about survival. And I'm seeing now um, footage of families, and actually, um, we slightly know one family uh, where where the they have a dual concern. They're worried that the war will uh, result in, in the deaths of any hostages that are being held alive. What does that look like where you are? Well, first of all, I should just say from the outset that Israel is a very small country, and almost everybody knows somebody who is personally affected by either the um, initial attacks on 10-7 in the south. I, I know several people who were killed in, in, in those kibbutzim or who were rescued from these, sorry those kibbutzim, um, or also people who were taken hostage. Um, I, I, I know the son of a professor colleague of mine is now a hostage in Gaza. Um, so I think just the immediacy of how small this country is. Imagine you just took the city of Chicago itself and then just, you know, projected 10-7 on that. Everybody would know somebody or be connected, you know, in some way. But I think the scale of how small Israel is is really important. And this is not just Jewish Israelis. It's also Muslim Israelis yes. um, and foreign workers and others who were, you know, either killed or taken into, in, into captivity. So it's a very immediate kind of thing. Um, but I think there is a concern um, about the stated war goals of Israel. Um, they've done polling that essentially says if you took, if Israel was unable in some way to rescue the hostages, or perhaps even some of the hostages sadly or may no longer be alive, then Israel's support for the war goals declines precipitously. For the Israeli public, the main aim is bringing the hostages back. The Israeli government. Um, main aim seems to be decimating Hamas's command and control. And those are two very different objectives. Um, and we'll have to see, you know, as we get more news about the about the Al-Shiva hospital and whether hostages may have been held there for some period of time, one hostage's body was sadly discovered yes. near the Al-Shiva hospital. There yes. have been a few more who have been pronounced dead in recent days. I think we're going to see that a change in the um, 
views of Israelis about how how long they're willing to support this operation in Gaza. Um, if you know, if there is no deal for hostages, or if frankly more hostages may may no longer be alive. That's fascinating because I don't think that's how it's being portrayed in the media here. Um, and here, what we're hearing is this is Netanyahu who will negotiate for hostages, but mostly wants to annihilate Hamas. And you're telling me that in Israel, the perception is that this whole war is about getting the hostages back first and flattening Hamas second. So that that is a different, just a completely different view of it from what we are well, I think at least simultaneously, here. if you remove if you remove the piece of the hostages being returned, then I think you know um, Israelis would feel that whatever has been achieved thus far, which has really done a very you know significant job in reducing Hamas's command and control structure, would be sufficient to many Israelis. That they, I mean, I think that they they felt what what happened in the last few weeks was necessary, but how much farther this should go in the absence of liberating hostages, I think, is is unclear. That That is, a, I think we'll leave it there, but that is something we're really going to think about here on our end in Chicago. Thank you so much, Dr. Hirshhorn. Sarah Hirshhorn, I really appreciate your time, and I hope that you and yours are safe. Um, and of course, we hope that, that those on the other side of the war line, the civilians, will be at some point returned and safe. Thanks again for being with us on WCPT. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Six minutes after seven o'clock. Good morning. I'm Turi Ryder. Enjoy the last of the uh, unseasonable fall weather. Little little chance for you to still grab those plants. You've been thinking you'd really rather not see freeze to death and bring them inside. This is it. I think <laughs> after today, I don't know, those those chrysanthemums, they may not make it. Uh, it's been good to spend the week with you. Santita should be back on Monday. I will be in for Joan Esposito on the 22nd. That's probably the next chance we'll have to get together. Uh, but speaking of the cold weather um, that's coming, you may have driven by any of the Chicago area police stations and seen the homeless encampments there. And as a listener to WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk, you know that it has really brought out some of the best of Chicago, some of the ugliest of Chicago, some legitimate fears and concerns. And two of the people who are working hard to bring unity, to bring help, uh, to bring solace and comfort and everything to the new arrivals you're about to meet. Darren Johnson is the program manager of Family Focus. That's not the same as Focus on the Family. Family Focus, Chicago-based nonprofit, um, which which provides services usually uh, mostly to Chicagoans, if I understand it correctly. Um, I should say uh, longer-term Chicagoans. And Alfredo Calixto is the program manager of Family Support. And they have turned their focus recently to um, getting services and helping out with Chicago's newest immigrant arrivals. Welcome, gentlemen. Have I described that properly, or do you want to change anything there? 
Well, good morning, Ms. Weider. Yes, this is Darren Johnson, and I have my colleague, Alfredo, Alfredo Calixto, yes. Yes, joining us as well. He's a program manager, and I'm the regional VP of uh, the West Centers. Uh, yes, and so and yeah, we have, have 11. Three, oh, okay, oh, 11 centers here in Chicago. I thought there were three. I'm sorry. Yeah, we have 11 service centers around the uh, north, uh, the Illinois uh, area and the uh, surrounding suburbs. And Freddie and I, we work, one of the centers that we work out of is the Belmont Cregan office in the Hedemosa neighborhood. Wonderful. Okay. So traditionally, your organization has helped fewer numbers of the, of the new arrivals, but now there are many. And, and what is Family Focus uh, doing to focus on these new arrivals? I understand it's considerable. Uh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, a myriad approach of supports that we're providing uh, throughout the 11 centers. So we provide emergency assistance, and that can mean uh, personal hygiene items, tents, sleeping bags. We also uh, assist with rental assistance for individuals that come through our doors. Uh, we have uh, what are called welcoming centers, Illinois welcoming centers, and we specifically have those at four of our sites in Evanston, at our Aurora location, our Cicero site, and also the Belmont Cregan, again, Hedemosa. And through those welcoming centers, they're sort of one-stop shops for immigrants and refugees and now recent arrivals to come and receive the, those, those family supports items and assistance that they need. And when I say family support, it's sort of a fancy way of saying case management, but it's where we're meeting families where they are. So we're not telling them what to do, but we're working in partnership with them to create family support plans. And throughout that process, we're learning more about them. We're providing uh, you know, respect and, and and mutual partnerships so that they are really the drivers of their destiny. Ah, so to the point of learning about them and, and letting them determine what they need most, let me turn to your colleague, Alfredo Calixto. What are people telling you they most need? I mean, my guess would be they need a roof over their heads and they want to work, but that may not be accurate. What What are you hearing is the most pressing, the top five pressing concerns that people are showing up with when you interact with them at first? Well, first of all, good morning and thank you for having us on the show. Uh, the the pressing, you, you're right on, on target with that. The, the immediate need is a roof over their head housing. Uh, they really, you know, nobody really wants to be in a police station. No. Nobody wants to be in a shelter. So they need housing. Uh, they need, then they want to work. They come here to work because somebody told them that they can come here and get a job. And when they get here, it's, they're surprised they cannot work. Uh, so that's, that's another big thing. And then, of course, immediate needs, they, clothing. Uh, they've traveled a long way and they have very little. Yeah, they they're carrying they, what they, it's not like they get to pack, you know, two carry-on bags and a checked bag there. They're they're coming, a lot of them, on foot before they get on the buses to Chicago. Um, so I'm, the housing thing, how are you handling that? Are Is your group renting apartments? Are you renting uh, hotels, space? What, what are you providing in terms of housing? And I also want to ask about the conversation that you have with people where you tell them, you know, no, you can't necessarily legally work here. So who wants to take which one of those questions? Oh, sure. I mean, we can we can both tackle it from 
opposite ends. Okay. Uh, no, I'll start out. So with the, yeah, with the housing, we don't provide direct housing, but we partner with organizations like Catholic Charities uh, that has programs in place that, to place individuals um, in housing where possible. Uh, we also have uh, recent arrivals that, as we all know, that are uh, at the shelters. Yes. So we have staff. Yeah, we have our staff that are um, at uh, several areas. One of the shelters that we're at is the American Islamic College. So we have staff that are co-locating there three days out of the week where they're providing intensive case management. And from there, we are working again with Catholic Charities, for instance, to try to get them housed. We also provide rental assistance. So individuals who qualify, they're able to get like a first month's rent, uh, their deposit, and then to hopefully get them on their way to more sustainable, affordable housing. Well, let me pause you there because if you're looking to place people in um, regular retail housing, wouldn't most landlords want to say, well, that's great. You have first and security deposit, but do you have work? How, how will you pay us after that? Is that a problem you're running into? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges that, that our families are facing and we as providers as well. So we do have a number of landlords that we work with who are empathic and they do understand that this is a crisis. You know, coming from the southern border, individuals that are literally fleeing for their lives coming here, looking for a new a new path forward, a, a new livelihood for their families. And so they are willing to take the risk. So with the applications that we fill out, yes, because they don't have a social security card or they may not have work authorization, um, they may work jobs where they're receiving cash. Um, so, and so there are landlords that it, it, it's understood that these folks will be uh-huh. working off the books. And are Absolutely. these are these people who perhaps these landlords, people who perhaps came themselves as refugees? Is that who's willing to rent to new arrivals or who who are these landlords who would say, you know, I, I, you don't even have a work permit and all you've got to offer is somebody else giving you first and security. But I'm going to take a chance on you and your family. Who are those people? I am so glad you asked that question, Ms. Ryder. I actually hand-delivered a rent check to a property manager last week in Evanston. And when I handed him the check, he said, I, too, am a family of immigrants. So I do understand what these families are going through. So I want to bend over backwards to help people who are in need. That's yeah, so, that's lovely. Yeah. That really is lovely. And it's a risk, you know, I'm, because when you're working off the books, um, there's no guarantee that you'll get paid. You're vulnerable. People do wage theft. I mean, it's really a, a rough situation to, to be in. And for a landlord to say, you know what, I'm just going to take a flyer and assume that some way you're going to come up with this rent every month. That's really something. Uh, I don't know if people yeah. really appreciate what that is because landlords usually have mortgages to pay. And if they don't get the rent, then they have trouble too. So thank you for sharing that story. Um, and so let's talk about the work angle. Um, maybe uh, you would like to explain what it's like to talk to somebody about their eligibility for work or not. Absolutely. Freddie, would you like to, to take yeah, that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me just first also add to the rent. Uh, what What's happening with the rent is the state of Illinois is assisting, and they're providing up up to six months rents, which gives the families up six months to find a job so they can be able to pay the rent afterwards. So ah, that's, the, that's nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, uh, and that's get, kind of a longer ramp then that that they would have to to get it together to get some kind of income going. Yes, yes, we had that experience with our first round of uh, the work we did at the Comfort Inn back in the fall of last year, mm-hmm. and you know all of the people got housing and they all are still in their apartment, so they they're working, they're paying their rent. Uh, so that's something to, 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 well, I just want to, to say that again. I want people to hear and understand. These folks are working and paying yes. their rent. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, okay. we know. Yes, uh, our families are working. They want to work. As I say, they're they're going literally walking and trudging through jungles and crossing rivers to get to a better way of life. And when they get here, they do work and they pay taxes. And so the other piece of family focus is we do have an advocacy arm where we are regularly in Springfield advocating for policies that uplift our families. Because, again, we know that they want to work in the dignity of work uh, and to provide a, a safe a life for their families. Yeah, I was just hearing it was it was actually kind of sad. There was a, a job fair, and a lot of people came um, seeking jobs, and only some of those people uh, could be hired because of the documentation. Talk about sitting down with a, a, a man or a woman, or even a, a young adult who wants to work, and going through the process of figuring out whether they will be able to get papers, how long that will take. Can, can you talk about what that looks like? I can share a little on that. The, um, the they all come looking for work. When they come through our doors, the first thing they say, "Well, I want to," is you know, "I want to work." You know, with a job. And I, I the first question I have to ask is, uh, "Do you have the, the documentation to work in the United States?" And of course, no. I said, "Well, you you really can't work here legally." You know, so you have to you let them know up front because somebody told them they could, and that's a you know, they're kind of what we can't work. So you know. But there's people they they know people already that are working and those are they find they they're able to find jobs to pay them uh, and you know, they they're they're uh, very good at it and finding jobs and eventually as I said earlier they they're able to maintain uh, apartments and so forth but re- most recently there's been a change in the law from the federal government that has uh, permitted uh, families from Venezuela to get temporary. Uh, protector status, which allows them yeah, to get the uh, work permits. Yes. And so that's something that's going to uh, uh, speed up the process where they'll be able to get their work permits much quicker and be legally able to work here. How long does that typically take? If someone is eligible for a temporary protected status and a work permit, is that weeks? Is that days? Is How, how does that happen? How long? Well, if if you can find the resources, you know, because it, it's something you need uh, legal assistance with, and it costs money to hire attorneys. So if you can find the, the wherewithal to get that done, it can take you uh, in months. Literally, you know, you can get your permit and uh, be able to work legally. And do you but, match? Uh, the problem do you, is, wait, wait. Do you match people with those services? Then uh, you mentioned you're sort of matchmakers there at at Family Focus. I'm assuming that you can point them to the place that they should go. Is that correct? There are several agencies that are partners with us, and, and we're all part of a, a bigger organization called ICER, uh-huh. and they they specialize in providing legal assistance. But they are very, very overwhelmed with the numbers. So it takes, it's a process of waiting, uh, the, you know, waiting game because everybody's super packed with um, families 
make an appointment, and so they give them a, well, I'll give you an appointment a month, a month from now, two months from now. Wow. And that's what we're hearing at the shelter. You know, there's a, uh, the families always say, yeah, but we tell them, have you contacted uh, this this agency that, that helps with uh, getting this TPS? And they say, yeah, but they're, they, they're so busy, I gotta, they give me an appointment two months from now. So it's kind of, it's, it's overwhelming. We just need more more support in that area, well, legal support. So you're you're making maybe a call for attorneys who might uh, have expertise or be willing to acquire expertise in this area. Is that what you need, or could somebody without a law degree be helpful if they wanted to volunteer for that? I think no, uh, the attorneys. Go ahead, Darren. I'm sorry. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, it, it does need to be an attorney. Uh, we also have DOJ accredited staff at Family Focus, but they don't necessarily do a silo work at this time. But we do connect them, as Freddie said, with the Illinois Coalition for Immigration and Refugee Rights. They have lists of pro bono or uh, or, or low cost uh, attorneys that provide those services. We actually just received uh, a grant from the state to help offset some of those legal fees as well oh, to assist nice. our participants. Yeah, so that we're is- we're coming at it from multiple angles. Well, this this is this brings me nicely to the next question like talk a little bit about um the the places you operate and uh just things you would like people to know about how your group interacts with all the people it serves absolutely yeah i can i can take that one i can start that one off so as i said family focus is a family support organization so we we what undergirds the work that we do are nine family support principles, again, working with participants through mutual respect and knowing that participants are resources unto themselves. We want staff that are coming from the community that are speaking the language. Um, many of our, most all of our staff in our welcoming centers are bilingual, and they have committed to the work of uplifting individuals who don't have the resources. And so we are committed. We are dedicated, uh, as I said, we have 11 service centers. We have the four Illinois welcoming centers that are strewn throughout our catchment area. And we, we take volunteers, certainly, to help us with our mission. Um, we also understand, too, that there is uh, what's called vicarious trauma that takes place. And it takes place with staff that work in this type of field. So we're hearing these traumatic stories of folks that are coming from the southern border. And just as you said, folks that we work with every day. And that can have an effect, an adverse effect on individuals who are working with them every day. So we have really implemented self-wellness and care strategies for our staff. We have mental health consultants uh, that reach out to the various service sites to ensure that our staff are whole and healthy so that they can assist other individuals. let's talk a little bit about some interactions from from where you sit you've probably observed now that we're seeing some conflict between uh the 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 resident community of people who uh-huh. need resources and, and are not always well served by the cities where they live sure. and the 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 new people coming and people who uh-huh. you know don't want don't want these shelters in their neighborhood um i just feel like i should also point out the the number of people waiting in police stations has come down almost by 50 from the statistics that I am seeing. There used to be like almost 3,000 people sleeping in police stations. And that, depending on whose number you've got, it's down to around 1,500 people who are who are sleeping in the police stations. That doesn't mean that everyone who leaves gets an apartment with furniture, but but at least uh, they're not camping at the, at the 
in front of the police station, which is probably one of the worst places that that they could be. Um, but when you see numbers like this, does that really tell much of the story? And what are you seeing in terms of building bridges between people who need services who are already here and some of the the new people? And are you still seeing a level of hostility or how, how is that being resolved if it's being resolved? Yeah, I mean, it is, as we're seeing on the te- on the television, there is a lot of um, hostility um, and animosity and anger. So family focus, you know, we recognize, so again, we're a family support organization. We understand that Chicago is a sanctuary city. Illinois is a welcoming state. So our stance is we are here to assist everyone and to provide them with the resources that they need. So we know there's a political angle. We're not a political organization. Whoever walks through our doors, we provide that service. And we understand that this is a much broader issue. This is something that needs to be tackled at the federal level. I mean, immigration is a federal issue. And so what we're doing with our boots on the ground here at the local level is providing those services, advocating for policies, again, that uplift and strengthen families. And so I don't want to say we try to stay out of the politics, but we, we are in Springfield. We're talking to our local officials, our alder uh, persons. We're talking to um, our, our state senators and representatives. And um, so, you know, we, we understand it's a delicate balance. We're in a precarious situation, organizations like us, that provide these services. But we try to stay above the fray because we know that the need is so great. I, Freddie, I don't know if you want to. Oh. Yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead. If you wanted to put some more context on that. So well, it, it's right um, on the money what you said that it's created animosity among the, the the local residents of Chicago that have been here for thirty, forty, fifty years, have worked all their lives, and now when the temporary protective status was granted to the Venezuelans, it created animosity even more. But what it did, uh-huh. it also identified that it can be done. Because what they've been hearing throughout the years is that Congress has to vote to make that happen. And they just saw the president uh, declare it. And so now the call is, since you did it for the Venezuelans, do it for all. That's what everybody's looking for. Allow everybody to to get a temporary status. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, I mean, politically, that would be very risky for the president, but we're going to, we're going to steer clear of that for now. Are you, (laughs) I don't want to make you guys do everything. You can do both. You can do it all. I'm going to say, we can, you know, we can do both. We can, we need, we have to do both. We have to take care of our residents. Yeah. We have to take care of our residents who have our lifelong Chicagoans and, you know, Washington, you know, people that have lived in Washington, D.C. And New I, I York, misunderstood everywhere. when you said we could do both. I thought you were saying we can, we yeah. can lobby the president and do our jobs. So, oh, I see. Yeah, no, no, no. We let's have, go yeah, to, we have to do both. Let's go to the, the situation of, of uh, finding people who are willing to sponsor these folks, individuals. I understand a lot of them do come with you know, a name or a relative or someone they want to stay with. And by the way, if you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Darren Johnson and uh, Alfredo Calixto, uh, both executives with uh, Family Focus, a social service agency that's helping these new arrivals as well as longtime residents in Chicago and beyond. So um, are you able to assist people in locating sponsors or family that they believe are here, uh, people from their home turf who are willing to assist them? Is that something you can do? Yeah. I mean, so, for instance, go ahead, Freddie. 
I was just going to say, not many come with that. Uh, very few. Uh, I've heard fa- I heard stories of people that have shown up here because of a relative or of somebody that they came to see and was not. And when they got here, that was not true. They couldn't find find them. Oh, that's but sad. very few, very few do come with uh, contacts here. Oh. Uh, there are some families that are that are willing to sponsor. Uh, people have gone to churches, local community churches, and there's families in the churches that say, "I can take uh, single moms, or I can take uh, families, you know, in for a while while they get situated." I'm very heartened to hear that. That that is good to hear. I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I will send people to your Facebook or your website. It's called Family Focus. If you Google Family Focus Chicago, you can find this organization. Maybe see how you can help. It's Santita Jackson's show, WCPT. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Live local progressive, we are WCPT. This is Santita Jackson's show. I am Tori with you, rider like the truck. If you want to continue our conversation outside of this broadcast and internet festival, I love it. The people check in from California, Minnesota. It's fun uh, hearing from you. And you're welcome to text me at 773-763-WCPT. For those of you with modern phones, no letters. That's 773-763-9278. And that, that will get your views to me directly as I sit here in the WCPT studios. We're expecting Santita back on Monday. I know I've been saying that all week. She's coming back. She's coming back. She's coming back. Truthfully, I, I don't make this up, but we want her to have the time it takes to, to feel better. I'll be in for Joan next week, the day before, the day after Thanksgiving, both of those, so we can connect then as well. And yes, I am the person who wrote that book. You can find that uh, at your local neighborhood bookshop. I hope it will make you laugh. I hope it will inspire perhaps uh, a young person in your life who's had a harder time um, breaking through, uh, perhaps experienced, uh, well, we don't, we don't really want any of you in here. Um, that might be a supportive thing that you could do. And the audiobook just came out just days ago. And yes, I I narrated it. Don't ask I thought at one point I thought I'm just going to open up a vein. I cannot. I cannot. But it got done and you can hear a copy of it. So if you have a long drive ahead of you for Thanksgiving, uh, just Google my name and book and it'll all be available to you. It's on Audible. Speaking of people who make change with uh, whatever tools are at their disposal, I'd like you to meet a woman who is using art for change. Her name is Paula Lees. Uh, she is an art educator, and she's the founder of something that just caught our attention right away, the Anti-Racist Art Teachers Group. Welcome. Do you do you like to use Paula Liz in its entirety or just Paula? You're on WCPT. Hi. Yes, it's Paula Lee. Paula Lee's. Paula Lee's. This, I mean, making change with art 
has been around. I'm thinking of Harlem artist Jacob Lawrence, sculptor Augusta Savage, all active in, in civil rights. But you're working with young people to make change with art. Talk about what you do and what your group does. Yeah, so just a little bit about the group. It is a collective of art educators across the country, and we really are kind of driving messages, this idea of promoting inclusive thinking, celebrating diversity, and inspiring transformative action through art education. Uh, So during the pandemic, when we shifted to virtual learning, a lot of us just kind of found and connected with each other online and we kind of aligned with that belief and that idea that art can create change and that we need to be empowering our students and our children with those tools so that they're ready and prepared to create that change and that we need in the future. What form does that take? Are you asking them to reflect their community in their art? Are you are you giving them history that goes with the art that's made change? What, what does that actually look like in your classroom, either virtually or in person? Yeah, so we actually, we have a website, antiracistartteachers.org, and we have on that website uh, different lessons that uh, teachers can use in the classroom that's broken into elementary, middle, and high school. We have uh, different resources, videos that you can uh, share with students or articles. And we also recently wrote a book, Anti-Racist Art Activities for Kids. And in that book, we kind of broke the uh, lessons up into themes. So we start with identity uh, and exploring our own identity. Because in order to really understand and make change around us, we really need to understand who we are as individuals first and understand ourselves, our voice, and the power within our own individual voice. Uh, we then talk about uh, second unit is different lessons on culture, uh, also community. So then starting to think about how you can make impacts within your own local community. Uh, empathy is another unit. And within that uh, unit of empathy, uh, also discussing compassion. And that difference between empathy and compassion is that, that action of uh, taking an action to uh, help others. Uh We then have a unit on justice and also activism is the last one. So there's a lot of education going on. So let's just say you do a unit with me on um, on family community, which you described as one of the earlier units. So we learn Mm -hmm. about artists who have been active in that space or do we learn the history of that? And then. What do I do with my art? Let's just say I'm your. We, we are your students, and and we're in that unit. What what will we experience? Yeah. So I actually I have a whole art. I call it artivism, and that's a term that was um, coined, I believe, in California by artists and activists out there. Uh, so with my artivism unit, I actually always. I start with just defining what activism is. So that's using your actions to bring about social change. Uh, And then I share with my students first, just kids who have actually used their voice and their actions to create change around the world. So uh, kids like Greta Thunberg, uh, Ashawn Johnson, who was also a Chicago student um, a couple years ago, who used his voice to kind of uh, speak up against the closure of a lot of uh, Chicago public schools. Uh, Sophie Cruz, uh, who was 
whose parents were undocumented undocumented immigrants from Mexico, uh, and also uh, Mary Copley. Okay, so uh, not not to sound not to sound too too like difficult here, but. Now, what do I do with my paint and my crayons and my pastels and my clay? Like, what, what do I do with that? When do I get to, when do I get to make something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I guess I always start with the kid activist because kids often don't, are not told that they have power and that they can make a change. So I just share those kid activists first. Then I share with them art activists. And a lot of what I do when I'm sharing those activists, art activists like Ai Weiwei, uh, Hank Willis Thomas, the Gorilla Girls, I share with them all the way, different ways that they've used art to make a change, whether it's through performance, through sculpture, through installation. Uh, and I just, I really believe that the root of art, it's not just making one specific thing. It's empowering kids to think about what's important to them, what they want to say, and how they want to communicate it. So I can just give examples of things my students have done in the past. Oh, do, so, please. Uh, I want to know yeah, what that. Yeah, I, so I, some, I want that box of crayons. I want to know what happens yeah. when they get the get the tools in their hands. What do they do with them? Yeah, so some of them have made like little miniature billboards that if they wish they could make a big billboard. Uh, I had one student make like a mini bus model and design like a side of a bus, a poster uh, that would go. I had um, other students... They made uh, cards for children that were sick at the local hospital, along with these little mini uh, action figures, superhero action figures that they uh, donated to students at the children's hospital. Uh, They've done, I had students design uh, postcards after the Nepal earthquake in 2016. They designed postcards, and this was completely student-led. They came up with this idea. They wanted to find a way to support so they made uh, watercolor paintings of different landmarks and made these postcards that they sold and they donated the money. Uh, at the local animal shelter, students, a couple of students painted portraits of the different animals available for adoption. And then uh, we displayed those paintings at the local library to promote adoption. Part of that, they made like dog toys and cat toys that they also donated. Um, so... Just to, just to kind of give you a wide range of just the different things that they that have come from that. This is yeah. so cool. It sounds like maybe you should change the name of your institution to Art Activists instead of Anti-Racist Art Teachers. It's going to be Activist yeah. Artists. Activist Art Teachers. A- activist Art Trainers. Because yeah. it sounds like your kids are operating everywhere. I have to tell you, when I've personally... Uh, been part of marches and I don't I don't do many because I I get I don't do many but I do some and I always appreciate the well-crafted artistic protest sign do any of those show up in your uh, classroom yeah so they've made um any anywhere again like from those little miniature billboards that they've designed we also look at um We've made digital. So actually during the pandemic, when we were all remote teaching, uh, students learned how to make digital posters and we're uh, sharing them that way. So, yeah, so definitely we look at a lot of uh, famous art activists who have designed those posters, like um, specifically Amplifier Art, which is uh, an organization that does a lot of posters for protests. Um, 
with like artists like Shepard Fairey. Cool. But yeah, a yeah. lot of them do. Who did yeah. the uh, iconic Obama poster? So in case people yeah. don't match the name with yeah. the with the yeah. art, that that is yeah. that is really interesting to to hear. And for people who are just joining us on your way to work, uh, you're hearing Paula Lee. She is an art educator and founder of Anti Racist Art Teachers, which I am now becoming an activist to rename because your focus is so much broader than yeah. that. But you know, you yeah. you can take that or leave it. Um, it, it's uh, a question that, that I that just came up as you were speaking about learning about the artists who have made change around the world. Who are some of the artists? Well, first, let me ask, what are the ages of the kids that you're teaching and who are some of the artists that they most respond to? Yeah, so I had been working with elementary school students, so kindergarten, actually pre-K through fifth grade, uh, other People in our collective um, work in uh, elementary, middle, and high school as well, and also uh, college level. So we kind of have a breadth of different uh, experiences, which I think is what's so great. And and which artists do they – you've mentioned a plethora of artists (laughs) and their stories. Whose work seems to make the the greatest impact on them? And and is there a consistent thread where they go – I like this about it that they seem to respond to over and over again. Yeah. So I actually, a lot of my students really responded to Hank Willis Thomas uh, at the time, because I lived just outside of Washington, DC and he had a lot of his artwork at the Phillips collection. Uh Uh, So students were able, you know, I was able to show them and some of them were able to, you know, encourage their parents to take them. And also he did the, um, a couple of uh, signs on the side of buildings during, uh, the, for example, he had the All Lives Matter sign that he put on the side of, um, I'm going to blank on the building, but in downtown D.C. So a lot of students had been kind of familiar with that and had seen that um, specific image. It's so interesting. I mean, as you're speaking, uh, I'm just, I was just in Toronto and saw the Keith Haring show that's up there. And yeah. I hadn't really, and I think a lot of us just sort of walking around in our lives, we may see people's art in on a, on a poster, in a gallery, in a museum, and we may not be aware of the artist's political activism or social activism. I know that when I toured uh, this exhibit in, at the um, Art Gallery of Ontario, it it was surprising to me just how much Keith Haring had done in the cause of AIDS activism and yeah. uh, safe sex work and all of this. Maybe because, you know, it's not like he died, you know, out of my generation, for sure not. So um, how do you talk about some of the thorny issues of these artists' lives? I know some of them had had trouble. Is Is that a... I guess what they call a teachable moment or an opportunity, or do you sort of gloss over some of the hardships of these kids? I mean, I'm sure you want it to be age appropriate, but what, what do you say about an artist who, whose art came from a place of hardship or challenge? Uh, I think that is an important part of their story. One thing that I try to do is I try to not speak on the behalf of artists. So whenever I can, 
find like old video clips of the artist actually speaking. So I think there's like a couple interviews of Keith Haring, you know, just talking about his work and his experience. Yes. Using those videos as a source. Another artist who I do talk about a lot with my students is Ai Weiwei. Um, and there's a really great video where he's kind of talking about. Well, for you know, those how. for those who don't know, um, give yeah. a give a quick ten second. Um, not everyone knows who Ai Weiwei is. Could you could you yeah. introduce him? Yeah, so Ai Weiwei is a contemporary Chinese artist and activist, and um, he actually has been imprisoned because of his art and because he's um, been so outspoken. So there is like a really great interview of him kind of talking about that and that. You know, even in the name uh, and understanding that sometimes like speaking truth is much more important uh, in that moment, even though there may be uh, consequences for that. Yes. And what 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 do the kids say about that? Uh, Well, I think and I when I talk about Ai Weiwei, I specifically talk about the installation he did after the Sheshuan earthquakes where. Uh, over 5,000 school children had died um, because the government buildings had been shoddily built, uh, and he had this installation. And I think when students see see that, they can kind of connect um, and understand the importance of that because it and it's showing that an adult is willing to speak up and speak out uh, in the face of injustice and kind of share what is right. I think, I honestly think kids just have this inherent understanding of justice and really feel empowered, empowered by that. Do, do the kids leave the, leave the, your arms more or less your metaphorical arms saying, you know what, I, yeah. I want to be an artist. I can make change with my art. What, what do they say about how they imagine art as they go on to high school or even come back to talk to you perhaps about going on to university? What do they say about that? Yeah, I think it's, and to me, they don't even necessarily have to be an artist or follow a path to have have embodied that. So, for example, um, when one of my uh, some of my former students, when uh, they would just kind of take that initiative on their own. So, for example, some of my fifth graders, they're supposed to get 30 minute lunch and recess block and. For some reason, they were only getting 25, so they, like, collectively took action. Oh, that's hilarious. I love that. That's hilarious. So they they were being screwed out of five minutes of lunchtime, and they used their art to organize around this issue? Yeah. So, and then they were able to, you know, meet with the principal and kind of figure out ways to restructure that schedule. So even, (laughs) to me, it's not just... The art, it's just empowering students to kind of speak up and speak out and make that change so that as adults in whatever capacity, you know, and to me, art's also about creativity and to create change, you need to first imagine and have that imagination and that creativity to think beyond what already exists, to imagine a better world in a better place. So to me, that's the role that art plays. Tell me a little bit about some of the other artists, where they're located around the country, and and uh, maybe a little of some of their stories with the with the few minutes that we have. Yeah, so uh, another artist that I really that my students really love is uh, Fabiana Rodriguez. She's a California artist. She does a lot of um, 
posters, a lot of social justice activist posters. Uh, she addresses a lot about um, migration, uh, gender justice, climate change, racial equity, and uh, really her her prints are just visually stunning. So I think students one resonate with like that uh, that imagery, and then also the combination of the words and thinking about you know how. How to use both words and images to con- convey meaning uh, is one thing. Um, another, and they're not, it's not one artist, but also the Gorilla Girls are another really Oh, tell people about, stuff. tell people about the Gorilla Girls a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So the Gorilla Girls, they're an anonymous group of uh, feminist female artists. So they formed in New York City uh, in the 1980s, I believe. And their mission was really to bring gender and racial inequality into focus uh, within the greater arts community. So they took out a lot of ads and posters. So there's one, for example, it says, how many women had one-person exhibitions at New York City Museums last year? Guggenheim, zero. The Met, zero. Whitney, zero. Uh, The Modern, one. So kind of showing the statistics and showing... You know, making it very clear the inequity, right, that's actually uh, happening. Um, So they did uh, posters, uh, billboards, uh, public appearances and things just kind of uh, bring that about. Yeah, I'm thinking of a local artist who who does some teaching at the university level. I I know her slightly. Her name is Riva Lero. She does art on including people with disabilities. Do you have um, a component of that in, in your collective? Is there somebody who's doing activism in that in that area? Yeah. So um, do, just to give a shout out to Dr. Reggie Matthew, um, she is an expressive arts therapist. We actually have a whole session, section on our website on arts accessibility uh, and disability justice. Um, so... We have that component, and uh, Dr. Reggie Matthews is amazing. And I also just want to shout out the other uh, members of our collective. Sure. Uh, Abby Brahano, she's in Missouri. Uh, Dr. Lori Santos is in Kansas. Khadija Latimer in South Carolina. Tamara Slade in California. Anjali in Wells in Maryland. Vernon Staines in Maryland. Um, and uh, Dr. Reggie's in New York. So. This is this, this is heartening because it's not just a list of people. Because you've mentioned where they are, uh, we're getting a sense that it's the internet that has made this connection possible. You mentioned that it was during the pandemic that you that you united in, in the virtual space, and also that this art is creating change in a lot of different parts of America, although I did notice that the South seemed to be conspicuously absent. What's going on there? Yes. Well, we did, like, um, our collective, that's just kind of our leadership team. Mm -hmm. We have monthly meetings, virtual meetings. Mm -hmm. Uh, If anyone listening is interested, if you follow us on Instagram at anti-racist art teachers, we just had a book club recently. We have it's upcoming. Um, it's called an ARAT chat, but it's just a time for edu- art educators or people that are passionate about this work to meet and talk. And we've had people from all over the world, you know, the South included. We've had people um, from Thailand tune in, Haiti, uh, Canada, all over the world to kind of unite in this kind of collective idea and to 
learn from one another and to uplift one another and, you know. I love give that. Each other ideas. I yeah. think that when you when you uh, when you speak in that world voice, it has to be really um, a great feeling to 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 know that, as as they used to say in the early queer rights movement, we're everywhere. So um, yeah. I also wanted to quickly ask you, uh, what is your what is your take right now on funding for the arts in schools being cut in a lot of places? Is there anything that you are doing about that or on that subject? Uh, so I feel like education in general is just underfunded. And I do think specifically the arts are incredibly underfunded. And I think that we need to think collectively as a country, what we want to be, what tools we want to provide our students. And I really do honestly think that we need creative, innovative thinkers for our future generation and the place where students, you know, build those skills is are in the arts, whether it's not, not visual art, music, dance, theater. We need to, instead of underfund, we need to be funding those programs more because really that is at the heart of, you know, part of our future because with <laughs> new technology, you know, every day, Reading, writing, math. We have AI that can just write papers now. Yeah, that so should free up we, some more yeah. time now that you mention it. <laughs> That's what we can do with our free. Let Chatbot yeah. write your history paper. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But still, yeah. there there is a lot of work that uh, has been delegated that we you may not. I mean, you don't need to learn to write cursive anymore. I think I can safely say that. And uh, you can hire somebody to write your wedding invitations if that if it really is that important to you to have great handwriting accessible and delegate that task. You can even have a computer do that. And with that extra time that you were making pretty handwriting, you can learn to make meaningful art. You can shift your time around. I worry because I think a lot of the aggression from the conservative spectrum is uh, somehow directed to art, music, um, well, education in general, but art in particular, just because it is so powerful. So that that is um, that is a conversation I suppose we'll continue and and have more of later. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Paula Lise, um, and I hope that I'll get a chance to talk with you again. Thanks for the good work that you're doing. It's Santita Jackson's show. I'm Tori Ryder. Santita should be back on Monday. If there's something you missed or you want to clue somebody into the show, you know we're always available on SoundCloud, so um, it's not gone. We're gone, but not gone. And I'll be here on the 22nd. Have a great weekend.